Today on the podcast, I'm going to be talking to one of my dearest friends, Roberto Lascalo. I met Roberto via his mother 22 years ago. His mother was crying at the coffee shop, and when I approached her to ask her what was going on, she told me that they had just lost the appeal in Roberto's sentence. Today, Roberto is 39 years old, and he has been in prison for 24 years. For the last 22 years, Roberto and I have spent 30 minutes on the phone every week and two or three visits a year in the meantime. Roberto was very hesitant to do this podcast as he does not believe his story is worth sharing. I had to implore him to tell his story because I believe we can all learn much from him. The tone of the conversation is a bit more somber than others, but I could not be more excited to bring to you one of the greatest human beings I've ever met, my friend Roberto. An inmate at Danville Correctional Facility. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. You may start the conversation now. Part one, the path. This is how Roberto was brought to America, how he first got involved with a gang, and the one reason Roberto believes that prison saved his life. Roberto, I would love to welcome you to the show uh, and have you tell us about you and your background and your childhood. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, I'm humbled that you even asked me to be part of this. I was born in Mexico, like many you know, many of the kids there out there right now. I was, uh, I was brought over when I was eight years old to this country. I went through, I guess you can say, a difficult transition. Uh, I was, you know, a young kid. Trying to get, it, trying to adapt to the to the environment. You, you know, at the time, you, I was young, so eight years old. You basically just going with the punches, right? They put me in school, and I remember not understanding anything because they, at the time, the school that I went to didn't have any like bilingual classes, anything like that. So I was just, you know, just basically trying to find a place where I wouldn't be noticed. <laughs> If, if you don't know the language, and especially at that age, you don't want to say something and then people laugh at you because you say something and that kind of, you know, it can really get to you at, at that young age. Yeah. It was difficult in many ways. I'm the youngest of four siblings, but my three older siblings, like the closest one is five years older than me. Mm. So they were already going into high school and junior high. My parents, they had to work. We had just arrived, so... They had to basically, you know, take care of the debt that they had to accumulate just to even get us here. You know, I would just come home and do what I had to do, and you kind of have to grow up at a very young age, you know. At what age did you join the gang life? I would say around 13. Most of the kids that were part of the gang, I mean, I knew them already, and it, it became almost like a like a natural thing to do, you know, you mm-hmm. just follow in with the crowd that you knew. Most of them had gone through the same process or, you know, like they were they were coming in from single parents or like nobody was home. So we all just hung around and we just try to fit in, trying to find some, some something to identify with. You know, it's interesting because you're probably one of the brightest human beings I know, but I can imagine going through school, not knowing the language, how difficult that must have been. And to find a place where you finally feel like you can kind of uh, excel is, was probably very meaningful at that age. Let's jump to, um, you know, kind of the event. You're 15 years old. You're part of a gang. There is a 
a gang incident bet uh, between your gang and another gang, and while you were not the shooter, um, you guys were uh, part of a murder, and you were sentenced to 55 years. You're 39 years old now. Um, you have you know, been in prison uh, the bulk of your life, um, but you told me uh, a number of years back that prison saved your life. What did you mean by that? You know, uh, anytime we go through difficult times, it's, it's like a defense mechanism kick in and you try to cope with it in any way possible. So my coping mechanism at the time was to blame everything and anything, right? Mm -hmm. trying, to, trying to think as to why I didn't deserve to, you know, spend the rest of my life in prison. So, but then afterwards, you know, throughout the years, I mean, a lot of it had to do with you challenging me as well, you know. And to me, you know, just so to tell, tell your audience, like, you didn't challenge me in a way that, oh, well, you know, quit feeling sorry for yourself, look at your, you, you know, look at your way this way or look at life this way. You just basically asked me to consider different things, you know. And to be fair, I mean, basically what I ended up doing, I just ended up considering, like, man, why, why did my life have to you know, become what it is now. And, you know, as I was able to reflect on that, I have, you know, I, I came to the realization that the path I was going, it, was, it wasn't leading me anywhere. It was just getting worse. Like you mentioned before, like I wasn't, I hadn't been arrested for nothing serious. But the path that I was going mm. clearly indicates that it, I was going that way. Right. You know, like nothing, there's nothing, every time I think back on my life, there's nothing that would indicate me a different path be, be, besides prison or the cemetery. Mm. It was either one. It, it was like, you know, as, as hard as I try to reflect on it, as hard as like, man, what about it? if this would have happened? Nothing. Because first of all, the mindset wasn't there. And apart from the mindset, like the, the options weren't there either. I was doing dumb stuff, teenage stuff, but dangerous stuff at the end of the day. And that wasn't going to lead me to anywhere but prison or death. So prison, although I have been in here, like you said, the bulk of my life, it has allowed me to, to gain a whole new perspective of life and to appreciate life in a whole different way. Part 2, Education. At 15 years old, Roberto was sentenced to 55 years in prison. Through many appeals, his sentence was eventually reduced by half. It's been 24 years, and in that time, Roberto has earned more degrees and certifications from within prison than many people do on the outside. He also gained a friend, Rick. And over time, Roberto became less of a student and more of a teacher. Let's, let's tell the, the listeners a little bit about how we met. So I was living in Chicago. Uh, it's 1998. And uh, I go to stop to get a cup of coffee at the Panera Bread. And your mom, who is a wonderful, wonderful lady, uh, always with a big smile, always super positive. Um, she's there and she's crying. And in Spanish, I asked her why was she crying. And she had told me that you guys just lost the appeal and that they had borrowed a bunch of money for the appeal. Your mom gave me your address and I wanted to write you a letter. I didn't know you. I wrote a letter, uh, and it was a "Hey, you don't know me," and you know, but you know, I'm 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 rooting for you, and and extended a, a friendship. But you taught me the first lesson of our friendship that day. You wrote, and I realized you did not leave your address because you're probably scared, and you don't want me to know where you live. And 
I tell you, I I broke down. I was so embarrassed because you were right. I was so scared. Um, I wanted to help. I wanted to help your mom. I felt like you could use a friend, but I was scared uh, of what this all meant. And your letter to me was a uh, a call of manning up, okay, and 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 do and and become. If you're really gonna help, just just really help. And I wrote you a letter apologizing with my address. And after three or four letters back and forth, that's where our phone calls began, which is literally my favorite 30 minutes every week. And, uh, and so I think it's an important part of the story because I think many people that don't know people that are in the penitentiary system probably feel similar than I did. And you immediately kind of call me out on it and I said I like this young man he, he is straight and honest do you remember that yeah well you know it goes both ways man you you called me out on, on on a lot of things and I was just being being trying to be honest you know I, I figured like man this guy reaching out to me trying to be a friend I guess what better thing than to be honest right I mean that's right. that's one of the things that we have learned in our friendship that that's that's what make this friendship the, the fact that we honest with each other and just speak the truth a hundred percent so i remember roberto the first time i went to visit you um i went to a max security prison uh to visit what you were now a, a 17 year old and I, I i'm not sure if i ever told you because i didn't want you to feel bad but i've never felt that scared in my life i have never felt you know they were bringing a, a bus full of inmates at the time and you know max security prisons is our very serious business and i remember meeting you for the first time thinking how in the world is this young man in this environment going to ever survive what was it like being in max security prison um uh, it was it was it was difficult and and not just on the on the physical level right it's just on the on the mental level on the physical level you don't really like concern yourself with it to be honest especially if you part of a of a gang or of you associate with certain guys because they kind of in the maximum or, or just in the prison environment it provides you a sense of of security to a certain degree but it was it was just challenging because Every day, you know, you're reminded every day that that you may never step a foot outside that that place. You know, this like they're literally gonna become your home for the rest of your life, mm. and it becomes more of a psychological warfare than anything. Like you, you, you constantly battling with yourself, trying to give yourself any sense of purpose in order not to lose your mind in there, which happens happens very often how did you do it roberto how did you at 17 thinking the system you know uh, as you know has basically condemned you to a life in prison how did you stay on track or or believing that maybe there was something better uh man you know i wish i could put it in words i wish i could tell you where i did this and i did that but i guess at the end of the day you just got to take it one day at a time, man. Mm. You just have to take it one day at a time in there. Because, you know, a, a, if you start thinking about uh, five years, ten years, you know, a, a, a long-term plan like that while you're in there, it, it, can, it can drive you crazy because in reality, five years, ten years, or even 20 years, you're still going to be in there. 
you know. Mm. And did you, uh, in a max security prison, Roberto, how, how, what was that schedule like? You, you don't, if I recall, you only had like an hour out of your cell a day or something like that, no? Yeah, you, you basically confined in there. All, well, at the time when I was there, you were basically confined all day. Uh, you would come out, you would go to the yard uh, at first, like an hour a day, then you would go to child lines, you know, and uh, go to lunch in the, in the morning and uh, in the afternoon, and that was your day. That was your day. That's what it consisted of. And you would spend basically 20-plus hours in your cell. Yeah, absolutely. And that was and that's the difficult time, right, when you have time to just sit there and just, like, you know, you you can use it wisely. You can read a book. You can you can try to do something, anything to distract you. But if if you sit there and just start thinking about your time and start thinking about your circumstances, it, like I said, it, it it got into a lot of guys while I was while I was there. Unfortunately, then you moved to a mid security prison in 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 if I if I remember correctly um that's when education became much more of a integral part of your life well you know I remember you used to send me books you used to send me you used to give me a subscription to the newspaper so that kept me that kept me uh Constantly trying to learn. Dude, I remember and, something. I remember for your birthday it was your twentieth birthday. Now you just remind me of something. I say, Hey, what do you want on your <laughs> birthday? You say, I want a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> Were you the did. only inmate in a max security prison with a Wall Street Journal paper showing up? Well, def definitely around the place where I was at. I remember everybody else getting it, but I just try to use the time wisely while I was there, man. Just try to keep myself busy, you know, try to keep something in my mind, and and uh, I kept hearing about the uh, uh, medium security prisons offering uh, uh, educational programs, and because none of that was existent in the maximum security prison, right. none of it, I mean, you once you had your GED, it was over with, there was nothing there for you to do. And, so, and Roberto, be, before you go into the details here, tell everybody uh, your educational journey. So you went in as a 15-year-old, you know, not even high school. What what have you accomplished educationally? Oh, man. And I want you to say it because I want to feel proud of you saying it. I don't want to say it. Well, you know, when I came in, my English was still not that, that good. <laughs> so um, I have barely, barely graduated eighth grade because I kept getting in trouble and all that kind of stuff. So they just, they were like, here, you can have your diploma and get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> right? And then high school, I remember going to high school for uh, literally like maybe two weeks. And then I got into it with some guys because of the gang stuff, and I never went back to school. So that was, that was it for school before I came to prison. Once I came to prison, uh, I was able to get my GED, and after that, uh, well, uh, I, you know, don't, I was able to get Don't be humble. Don't be humble, or I will be for you. So what else did you get? <laughs> well, no, you know, now I'm working on my master's. I'm working on my MBA. So I, I've been able to accomplish that. I've been able to attain my bachelor's degree. I have been able to attain a couple of vocational programs. Uh, uh, I have been able to attain a, a substance abuse uh, certificate. Um, I just, you know, just continue to challenge myself and try to learn and and try to expand, you know, 
the way I see things and the way that I view life. That's that's the way I look at it. You know, at the end of the day, it's not about just attaining degrees and accolades. It's, it's all about challenging myself and just trying to trying to learn. You know, mm-hmm. just becoming a student of life. So that people understand um, how hard it is to do this, because you after your GED, you got an associate's, then your bachelor's, your master's, all your other certificates, and all that. You know, a lot of times you're just waiting for the mail to arrive. You would do the homework. You would do it on your own. You had to figure it out. You'll send it in. And if the mail took longer, they basically came and said, oh, sorry, you know, it expired. You have to do it again. Like the amount of friction in the system for you to finish any single class was remarkable. And your ability to stay focused on the goal. I know that you love to learn, but I, you know, that that's another thing that I've just started loving and admiring about, you know, you were just relentless about this. Once you start learning something, it's, it's, it's crazy, right? Because you, you start to realize how much you actually don't know. <laughs> And it, it becomes almost like 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 a challenge. Like you, it's like you 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 just looking for the next thing, looking for another answer. You just just trying to figure, like trying to make sense of things. And, and you know, to me, it made a lot of sense also to keep learning because it helped me understand where I was coming from, mm. the environment, the, the a lot of things in life that in the past I had just simply taken for granted or just say, well, you know, it is what it is or that kind of stuff. And as as I was able to tap into education, I was able to find a lot of answers for these things. And, 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 not, and you know, sometimes you don't find a, an exact answer, but just the fact that it, it helps you make sense of things in a rational way. Part three, re-entry. This year, Roberto is getting out. And to close this out, he clears up common misconceptions about what it's like to be in prison. He relives the day he met the father of his victim and shares how he plans to pay it forward once he's released. One, one of the things is that a lot of times when we think of prison, we think in terms of, of bad people, right? Mm. Of good and bad. And a lot of the misconception is that, you know, people who are in prison... They they in prison because they bad people or because they do bad things all the time, or we tend to think like the worst case scenario, and the reality is that you know over ninety five percent of people who are in prison will be getting out of prison at some point. The vast majority is just normal people who made honest mistakes. I mean, some of them were horrible mistakes. Some of them were mistakes that will haunt them for the rest of their life. But at the end of the day, everybody makes mistakes, right? And that's the, that's one of the biggest misperceptions that there are out there. I think it's just part of the culture that we live in. I want to go to a, to a difficult day before we kind of get closer to the end here. But um, it was the day that uh, you asked me to bring the father of the victim and you, uh, a, a number of years back, felt like you needed to to face him and, and, and apologize for your actions. And it may have been the most powerful human experience from both ends. Um, yours from accepting responsibility and his from, uh, you know, showing forgiveness and, uh, and, 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 and kindness and compassion. Um, what did it feel like? after that moment for you? 
you know, you, you know, like you said, it was extremely difficult, and and I have to say, you know, it would have probably never happened had, had you not even brought up the idea. Um, you know, I mean, to give the audience a bit of a, of a background on it, you're the one who 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 brought that up to me, and I had to think about it for for a long time, right? Because I didn't know if I even had the the courage, I guess, you know, to put it simply, to even be able to do that. Uh, you know, uh, what can you say to somebody like that? Obviously, a simple I'm sorry is not going to do it, right? Right. Uh, so it was just, after that, it was, a, I guess, a, a sense of peace, to be honest. Mm. You know, it's like like you're always carrying this burden on your back. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know for a fact that through this horrific moment, uh, 20, 20 some years ago, 24 years ago, I, I met two of the most remarkable people, you and, and the father of the victim. And, you know, his feeling leaving that day, because rightly so, his level of anger and his level of, emotion towards this will never change but he was so pleased that you had come to the place you come to and so hopeful that you would become a force of good and and so convinced that you would that you know what I felt from him from you was relief from him was hope and uh, from a human experience standpoint I I don't think I've ever seen something more powerful and, and more human than that encounter. And it wasn't an easy encounter for both of you. And he was very direct with you and he was very tough, rightly so. And you were a man, you stood there and, and you were um, honest and vulnerable and, and grateful to have the opportunity to look at him. And anyway, I just think that you know humanity is about those moments. It's not about the moments when we are at our worst, but when we are at our best. And and both of you were at that moment. You've had a number of good friends that have left. And, you know, we talked about a couple of them lately that are doing some good things. Uh, by noticing the people that have left, what are some of the hardest adjustments they make? And the people that have been successful at reentry, what have you noticed they've done well? Well, one, one of the biggest things is, is that having a support network. Having a support network, having somebody out there to help you out and to uh, allow you to just basically get your feet on the ground. And it doesn't, it, you know, a lot of times I think we make the mistake of thinking of, of them necessarily in economic terms as we're thinking, oh, you know, if, if somebody coming out, you know, I may have to help them and I don't have the money or I can't offer them a place to live. or I, So people may feel... They, they they don't really have anything to offer. But from having reached out to some of these guys, they have basically told me, like, look, probably one of the biggest things is just at times is having someone that you can reach out to and just talk to, you know? Mm-hmm. Like when things get difficult, when things get overwhelming, just having someone that, that can actually be there for you and just, just basically tell you, you know, like, hey, look, everything's going to be all right, man. Like don't don't allow this to get to you, don't allow this to to overburden you, because whoever you thought you was your friend out there, 
over 90%, you're going to lose that, you know? Mm-hmm. And people are just going to move on with their life, especially if you've done 15, 20 years, 25 years. People are just going to move on. Like, not that they don't care for you, but, you know, they got to move on with their life, basically. And a lot of times, the only people that they have left is their parents or their immediate family. And for some of them, you know, it's unfortunate, but they, they lose that even when they ain't here. Their parents may pass away. The only people who ever looked out for them may pass away. So when the time comes for them to go back in society, there's, there's basically nobody there for them. I mean, I've been in prison for almost 24 years, and, and, and like I mentioned it to you in the past, I still consider myself one of the most fortunate individuals. Um, I've been grateful, you know, and, and I've been fortunate enough to have met you, have met people who, who generally care about me, who have taken the time to help me out and, and offer me a, a whole new uh, perspective on life. And, you know, I guess one of the things that, that, that I look forward to is paying it forward, mm. just being in a position to, to help out, to help out in any way. If it's just talking to people, if it's just reaching out to people, if it's just even listening to, to, to a young me, you know, mm-hmm. um, hopefully be able to provide some, some guidance and, and, and show, you know, just show individuals that, you know, they, they, what they're going through is not necessarily unique in many ways, unfortunately. Just trying to make a difference and offer somebody an opportunity that that maybe in the past they would have never thought they that it was even available for them. You know, I I have zero doubt that um, you are going to figure out a way to do that in spades. Um, so I want to I want to kind of take it here to the final spin and talk about a couple things. Um, you and I have a long list of things we're going to do when you get your ass out of there. Um, you know, what, what is at the top of our list? What are we going to go do for a couple of weeks and not let anybody bother us? <laughs> oh man. We, well, eventually we got to go to the World Cup, brother. Right. Well, so, you know, for 20 some years, we, you know, we talk about this all the time and, and a little bit of our visual has been the next World Cup when you get out, we're going to go and just park ourselves and watch every game and, you know, have a few beers and talk trash and, you know, do just like literally, but it is funny how that image, which has always been a constant in our kind of dreaming together of something we're going to do, it's getting ever so closer to reality and, and I can't wait. I am so pumped. Oh, wow. so am I. Trust me, man. <laughs> what are the yeah. What are the things that can't you wait to try to to do? You know, when you went in there, there was no iPhones. There was, you know, basically no internet. There was none of this, and just just what's on your dream list? Oh man, my dream list is just it's just this right here, like having a conversation with the people I care, with my family. You know, being able to hug my mom and my parents and that's basically that's basically what what I look forward to to be honest you know not to not to evade the question uh, technology you know like they'll come around and I have time to do all the other things it's just after being in here for all these years kind of gain a great appreciation for the things that we sometimes take for granted you know yeah. It's like this moment's right here, brother. 
You know, the listeners, Roberto and I have started every conversation the same way. And for anybody that, <laughs> that doesn't know what this is about, probably thinks it's the weirdest thing. But every week when he calls, uh, we pick up the phone and I pick up. And uh, when it gets transferred to me, I scream, Patuleco! And what do you scream? <laughs> <laughs> it's our greeting. It's crazy that we've done that hundreds and hundreds of times, and every time it just warms my heart. And not as much as you know, after the flight in the Hudson River, I got all sorts of notes and letters. But the one that I will always remember was the one you sent to me, and you sent me a letter, basically saying, "Holy cow! I just heard. I am so glad you're not." dead because without you I wouldn't have you know something or someone that believes in me and doing that and and it, it made me realize something Roberto and and I don't think I've never told you this but I can't make up my mind if you're my little brother or my oldest son but one of the two or a blend of the two because what I felt reading that letter was just a tremendous amount of love and and just respect and uh and and, and purpose and knowing that You know, our lives were richer because of each other, and, and you clearly had taught me so much uh, and had given me purpose. And when I met you, I, I did not have kids, and, and you know we were having a hard time having kids, so I, I, I probably uh, adopted you without you knowing it, and uh, <laughs> your letter meant that much to me. So, oh, man. You know, leading up to that, like, I was I was learning, you know. I've been maturing throughout the, throughout the years. And as like I said before, I was grateful. I was grateful that that you even taking the time to you know become a friend and and kind of challenge me and all these things. But when they happen, you know, like like when many things when when we go through difficult things, right? Yeah. You, you kind of sit back and reflect on on life. And when they happen, it made me reflect on it, brother. It made me like think about what my life would be if I didn't have that person there who's just trying to be a friend, just hmm. someone who who challenges me, someone who 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 makes me think that, that things are possible, you know? Unfortunately for a lot of kids coming up up there, or even for guys in here, they, they They, they don't have that, they never had that opportunity to think that certain things were even possible. And one of the things that I have been fortunate enough to, to, to learn and to understand through our friendship is that you, you basically provided me with a, with a new paradigm through which I can view life. You know, like before, I'm like, man, I would have never thought like getting out of here and going to school or, or Uh, you know, many of the things that, that we, again, we take for granted, I wouldn't have even thought about it, you know? And you come into my life, you like, you made me challenge myself, you made me think of life differently. And so when that day happens, when when the when the accident took place, or when the incident took place, I just, you know, it made me think like, man, what would my life have been up to this point, and what would it be past this point, if you would have you know, died on the, on that crash. 
Thank you. Well, I know this was very hard for you to do. I almost had to strong arm you into doing it because, you know, you, you've, you're a very private person and this is, you're giving all of us a gift. So I, I thank you for that and uh, I will be talking to you very soon. Big hug. All right, my brother. All right, brother. Take care. Be well. I am so glad you got a chance to meet Roberto. I have learned so much from him and here are the three things that I would like to share with you. Number one is that the majority of people in prison are actually normal people that have made a mistake, yet we don't see them this way. Many of us have done things that could have gotten us in trouble, but by luck, it didn't. No one's life should be defined by the worst thing they ever did. Humanity is about seeing the best in someone and not judging them by the worst mistake they made. And number two, is that it's the little things in life that are really the big thing. Think about Roberto. He just wants to hug his mom after 24 years of not being able to do that in freedom. Life has a way to dull our senses. Why is it that we lose our ability to appreciate the little things? Why is it that it takes us losing something to value something? And number three is the fact that we all need someone to believe in us. Someone in our corner, no matter what. There are so many people all around us that carry this void. We do it for our loved ones. Why not reach out to a stranger? True humanity is treating strangers the way we treat those we care deeply for. A final note. This is the classic story of the student becoming the teacher. I am a different person because of my relationship with Roberto. I took the risk of reaching out, and from it came one of the most amazing connections I will ever make. Roberto, through his school credits, is going to be able to get out of prison later this year, and I look forward to partnering with him and making a difference for other strangers out there. Thank you.